Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at one of our worship services. Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at either 9 or 11. We're going to look at the first seven verses of this chapter this morning. So read along with me if you would. Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about. And there was a number of matters that the Corinthians had written to Paul in a previous letter of which we do not have. And uh, so the rest of the Corinthian letter, he's going to be answering the questions that they posed to him. It is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. This is the word of the Lord, church. Marriage. Are there problems in marriage? Why are there problems in marriage, do you think? What was that? Was that Melody? What did she say? Husbands, yes. You're not too far off there, Melody. Yeah, when you put two sinners together, you put two sinners together, you're going to have problems, right? It's a matter of us growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus so that those problems become less and less. Remember, we are still fallen beings living in a fallen environment, a fallen world. We don't do things perfect. We're not yet perfect in any way. We are still selfish we still want our own way. We want what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. Notwithstanding that, we still live in a world that's fallen. Worldly influences, uh, worldly temptations affect our attitudes. Our attitudes about ourselves, our attitudes about one another, our attitudes about the environments in which we place ourselves, and marriage would be one of those environments. And so the Corinthians... They lived in this godless, pagan, morally corrupt society. And they, as many of us have over the years, they carry with them some of this corrupt baggage into their new Christian life, into the life of the church. And they had questions for Paul. 
much as you and I have come out of the world. All, all of us got saved out of the world, didn't we? I mean, even if you're raised in a Christian home, you had to come to that place in your own life where you made a decision for Jesus on your own. You're no longer on the coattails of your parents' faith. You had to come to that moment. And all of us came out of the world. We came out of the world system, the worldly influences, all the attitudes, all the things we picked up along the way, all the things we read in the newspaper that we thought were absolutely true. We watched the news, all these influences. And you get saved and you, you, you start hearing teachings and messages and you start reading a Bible and, and you start reading books and people give you tapes to listen to. And all of a sudden, you begin to see things aren't as you thought they were. They're better. But it's still hard to let go of some of those habits, some of those patterns. Some things die hard, don't they? And so the Corinthians were in that situation. Living under the Roman Empire, and under Roman law and the customs of the day, marriage in Corinth and in the Roman Empire uh, was evidenced in four different kinds of marriages. Most of the early Christians, if you didn't know this, most of the early Christians were slaves. And they were desperate people, and desperate people will respond to a message of good news, won't they? Typically. And so lots of these slaves got saved. And, <coughs> excuse me, and if a male and a female slave wanted to be married, they might be allowed by the slave owner to live together. But the slave owner reserved the right to sell either one or both of those slaves. So that marriage situation was in a very, very tenuous uh, kind of a, of a state. So they could, they could live together only as long as the slave owner permitted. There was a second type of marriage in which a man and a woman, if they lived together for one year, that was labeled and called a common law marriage. Incidentally, you may or may not know this, but there's no such thing as a common law marriage in California, legally speaking. A third type would be one in which a father could sell his daughter. Remember, women did not have any kind of status of equality, and they were really, really treated like property. So a father could sell his daughter to a prospective husband. She had no say in the matter whatsoever. There's a fourth type of marriage that really is the precursor to what we understand as our Christian marriage. And that was where there were lots of trappings, and these marriages were largely reserved for the, uh, the patrician people, if you will, the higher uh, stated people. And that's where both families would be involved. There'd be an agreement, and there would be an actual marriage ceremony. The Roman Catholic Church adopted that from the Roman uh, custom, and then eventually at the point of the Reformation in the 15th century, the Protestant church picked it up. So when you go to a marriage ceremony today in a Christian church, it is really reflective of what happened way back in the Roman Empire. That was the fourth kind of marriage. Now also in this culture of Paul's day, divorce was common. More common than you can imagine. It was not impossible for some men, for some women, to have been married and divorced 20 times or more. 
you can understand that marriage was not held in, in high esteem by most people. There was an active and vocal feminist movement in that culture. Women were actually competing with their husbands at every level, even in athletic contests. And there was a, a tremendous aversion to having children. So there were lots and lots of childless couples in the Roman Empire. And in this environment, both men and women were determined to live their own lives in their own way, regardless of marriage vows or commitments. In essence, the marriage vow, the commitment, made no difference whatsoever. They were both doing their own thing. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Yeah, we, we see that same thing happening today. The early church was made up of members from these kinds of environments. They had people who lived together. They were still living together in all four types of these marriage arrangements. And it also had those who had been married multiple times and divorced multiple times. Can you imagine some of the confusion that was going on? I would not have wanted to be a pastor in those days. <laughs> Marriage counseling would drive you crazy. Not only that, but some had gotten the notion that being single and celibate was somehow more spiritual than being married. And so with that attitude, they disparaged marriage entirely. Now, it may have been that some, some teachers were teaching that sex was unspiritual and it should be abandoned. Again, if you recall the... the attitude, the philosophical attitude during that time was that anything physical was evil and anything spiritual was good. So you had this dichotomy going on and this affected people's minds toward their own relationships and even towards marriage and what goes on in a marriage. You can imagine how difficult these situations were for those early Christians. So they have some questions for Paul. Now that we're Christians, what should we do? How do we handle our present life situation? What do we do in the midst of these kinds of influences and teachings? How do we comport ourselves? Should we remain single? Should we get divorced? Uh, what if our spouse is a non-believer? Should we stay married? Should we divorce that person? Should we stay together as husband and wife if we're both believers? So there was lots of confusion going on in the Corinthian church. Now in our passage this morning, Paul starts with the issue of singleness. And he teaches that celibacy is good. That it can be tempting, however, and that it is wrong for the married and that it is, in fact, a gift from God. Look at verse 1. He says, it is not good for a man to marry. Literally, it means it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's a more literal translation from the NIV. The phrase, to touch a woman, was really a Jewish euphemism for talking about sexual intercourse. Paul is saying that it's a good thing for Christians not to have sexual intercourse, meaning it's a good thing to be single, unmarried. Now, he's not taking a negative view of, of, toward marriage or that being single is somehow superior to marriage. He simply is saying 
that singleness, as long as it is celibate, is good. Are you with me? Some of you I've lost. Okay. What did God say in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18? If you go through the first chapter of Genesis, the creation account, after each day of creation, what does God say? It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Then you get into chapter 2, verse 18. This is the first time he says something's not good. What's not good? It's not good that this guy's alone. Every woman knows that. She sees that poor guy, she says, buddy, that guy needs help. I'm just the one to help him. Meaning she's going to change him. Eh, no. There's a big difference between being a helpmate and trying to change somebody. God says, no, it's not good that this guy's alone. I better make him a helper, someone to come alongside him, someone who's suitable to him. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Someone who's suitable to him. All people need companionship. True? And God gave marriage to be, among other things, the most fulfilling and common means of companionship. Jewish tradition looked on marriage as the ideal state and singleness as disobedience to God's command to be fruitful and increase in number. So God told Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful, increase in number. So from a Jewish perspective, that was God's command to do. And if you weren't doing that, you were sinning against God's will. Now, it's possible that some, because of, of that very thinking, some of the Jewish believers were pressuring these single Gentile believers to be married. Remember, the church, Christianity, started in Judaism. It had its roots in Judaism. And so the gospel went to the Jew first, and then when they turned away, then it goes to the Gentiles. So the church was largely made up originally of Jewish believers. And so these Jewish believers, with this mentality, this high view of marriage, when the Gentiles started getting saved and they were single, the Jews would start pressuring them, you need to be married, you need to be married, you need, unlike, or, or just like our mothers, right? You need to be married. And so Paul, Paul taught that being single was not a bad thing. He taught that it was a good thing. It was an honorable thing. It was an excellent way of life. But it's not more spiritual. It's not more acceptable to God than marriage. Now look at verse 2. He says to us, But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Because there's so much immorality, Paul now speaks of the danger of fornication for those who are single. Because the sexual desire is so strong, and if unfulfilled, there's a great temptation to sexual immorality for those who are not married. Paul is not reducing marriage to simply being God's escape valve for the sex drive. He's not suggesting to go out and find another Christian to marry only to keep from moral sin. Paul has a much, much higher view of marriage than simply that. His purpose here in our text is to stress the reality 
of the sexual temptations of singleness and to acknowledge that they do have a legitimate outlet in marriage. Therefore, he says, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He's talking about a mutuality in this relationship. They are mutually, they need one another, they're interdependent, and they require a relationship. The Bible gives us a number of reasons for marriage. First of all, again, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful, increase in number. So it's, it's necessary for procreation. That's God's design. Marriage also is an environment in which it should be pleasurable to be married, and especially from the physical aspect. If you recall last week from Proverbs chapter 5, we remind, we read, read this. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be ever captivated by her love. Isn't that a little bit racy, huh? That stuff's in the Bible. You read the Song of Solomon, you see the same kind of thing. Oh, my gosh. So marriage is to be an environment where there is to be pleasure, and we are to pleasure our spouse. Thirdly, marriage is a partnership, and it's a friendship. I often tell people, you want to marry someone you like. Do I like this person? You want to marry, in effect, your best friend, if you will. You want to marry someone you can be a partner with. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, again, God says, I'm going to make him a helper suitable to him, someone who will come alongside, stand with him, be his partner in life, his partner in fulfilling the commands that I've given him to steward creation. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Paul calls uh, the, the, the wife and the husband partners, partners in this gracious gift of life, co-heirs, if you will. So this idea of partnership, of companionship, of friendship. Um, <clears throat> I'm thankful for my wife, who's here with us this morning. And uh, she is my best friend. She is my greatest partner. She's my greatest support. And I tell her not often enough that I'm so thankful for her and that I would not be the man I am today if she wasn't in my life. She's made all the difference in my life. Thank you, darling. <laughs> Marriage also is a picture. It's a picture of the relationship that Christ has with the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul uses this analogy. He talks to a wife and he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. As the church submits to Christ, so wives ought to submit to their husbands in most things. There's a little mumbling there. Submit to, the, to, the, to her husbands in what? Everything, everything. Should the church submit to Christ in everything? Absolutely. It's in our own best interest to do that. Yes, Lord. And then he says to the husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself for the church. 
He laid his life down for the church. He died for the church. And so husbands are to love their wives in that same kind of way. God may not call you as a husband to literally physically die, but he is going to call you to die to your own appetites and desires in order to encourage and support and show love to your wife. So really marriage is a, is a number of things, but the, the beautiful thing, it's a picture. And so two Christians in a marriage, how they conduct their marriage, they're either telling the truth or they're lying about the relationship of Christ with the church. Does that make sense? Verses 3 through 5, Paul tells us, though celibacy is a good thing, it is not good for married people. Read these verses with me once again. He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because you lack your lack of self-control. Some Corinthian believers had the wrong view of celibacy, that it was something that was spiritually superior to marriage, and so they would practice it in their marriage. And Paul is addressing that problem. Some have, some husbands and wives even apparently decided to set themselves apart unilaterally from their spouse to be holy to God. I'm, I'm just holy to God. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give myself to you. And thus they neglected their responsibilities to their spouses, and especially in the area of sexual relations. And this was probably common most common when the spouse was a non-believer because it gave the believing spouse an added excuse to do that. But Paul told them that married believers were not to sexually deprive their spouses whether or not the spouse was a believer or an unbeliever. God holds all marriage to be sacred. Let me say that again. God holds all marriage to be sacred. And he holds sexual relations between a husband and wife not only to be sacred, but to be proper, even an obligation. Physical relations within a marriage are not simply a privilege, not simply a pleasure, but a responsibility. Husbands and wives have a duty to give sexual satisfaction to each other. There is a mutuality there. It's not just that the husband has this privilege, and the wife has the duty. They both have the responsibility and they both have a duty. And a failure in this area brings dishonor to God because it dishonors marriage. It dishonors God's design for this relationship. Our bodies are a gift from God, are they not? How are we to treat our bodies? We to exercise good stewardship over them? How we eat, what we drink, what we do with them, do we get proper rest, is on and on and on and on. In fact, most people are given to this phrase, it's my body. Well, in a sense, yes, it is your body. But even more than that, God purchased your body, didn't he? If you recall from last weekend in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Mike reminded us, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? 
whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. So on one hand, my body is mine. On the other hand, it's, it really belongs to God. But even more than that, Paul is telling us here, in the realm of marriage, our body belongs to who else? Our marriage partner. Our body belongs to our marriage partner. This is not just theory. This is what God has said to us. Sexual expression in marriage is not an extra. It's not an option. It's a responsibility. It's, in fact, a duty. It's an obligation. Nor is it simply a necessary evil in which spiritual Christians engage in merely to procreate children. It is far more than a physical act. It's a gift from God, created to be an expression and experience of love on the deepest human level. And it's the final act when a couple bond together. And the man and the wife shall come together, become what? One, one flesh. That's just another way of describing what we understand sociologically as bonding with, the, bonding with another person, developing this, this bond. And there's a number of steps, gross steps in the bonding. I don't mean gross evil. I mean just, you know, you know what I'm saying. The first step in human bonding is eye-to-body contact. Quickly moving to eye-to-eye contact. Every parent knows and understands the importance of eye-to-eye contact, right? Your kids are going like this. You say, look at me when I'm talking to you. <laughs> if you don't get eye contact with them, you're, you're not going to connect. And it proceeds to a point of sexual intercourse, and that is the final bonding act between a man and a woman in marriage. That's the glue that holds them together. And when that glue is not there, the marriage begins to disintegrate. God means for us to be one. And he's given us this incredible way to express that oneness on the deepest human level. God intends marriage to be permanent. How many know that? He intends marriage to be permanent. Till death do us part. Very often, when I've done marriage counseling, and I'll ask, I say, let me, let me ask you a question. When you got married, think back to the day your wedding ceremony. Did you say anything like, for better or worse? Did you say anything like, in sickness and in health? Did you say anything like, for richer or poorer? Yes. Did you say, till death do us part? Yes. Did you mean it then? Yes. Mean it today. God means for marriage to be permanent. It's not a throwaway institution. It's not something to be discarded once we encounter some difficulties or trials or bumps along the way that we don't or won't resolve. He's mean, he means it for, for, for it to be permanent. He intends the same for the sexual relationship. So he says, do not deprive each other. The only exception would be by mutual consent 
for a season of prayer, a season where you agree together, we're going to seek God. Or one partner says, I want to seek God. Can we not come together for that little season of prayer? And there's agreement on that. But when that season of seeking God through prayer ends, the normal husband-wife relationship is to resume. When a time of concentrated prayer is over, normal desires and temptations will return. And Satan knows us. He's, he knows what we're like. He knows how we tick. And he knows that we can be especially vulnerable after those spiritual times. That's why Paul says, come back together. So unless it's by mutual consent for a specific prayer time, sexual abstinence can be a tool for Satan. It's never to be used, by the way, as a pretense for spirituality or as a means of manipulating one's spouse. Sex is not meant to be a weapon. It's meant to be a blessing. And so many times there's subtle, subtle uh, issues come up and sex now becomes a weapon, becomes a source of punishment and deprivation. Physical love is to be a normal, regular experience shared by both marriage partners alike as a gift from God. Whatever we do with a gift speaks volumes of what we think of the gift giver. Isn't that true? Someone has given you a gift, you, a wedding gift or a birthday gift, and it's not your cup of tea. So, and it's something to be displayed. But if that person is really significant in your life, chances are you're going to display it rather than hiding it. Because if Aunt Mary comes over and it's not out there, hmm, you know what I'm talking about? In the last two verses, verses 6 and 7, Paul finishes now by saying that he was aware of the goodness of being single and celibate, and yet aware also of the privileges and responsibilities of marriage. He says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. His instructions were not meant as a command for every believer to be married, though marriage was given by God and is apparently the norm for man-wife relationships. And it's a great blessing. Think about marriage. How does marriage affect mankind in general? Is it a good thing? Yeah, it's a fundamental unit of society. Stability. It brings order. So when, when people stay together, families stay together, you have structure that leads to well-being for that culture, for that society. So marriage is a blessing, really, not only to the couple, but to all of mankind. But, as good as it is, it's not required. It's not required. Paul's point simply is this. If you're single... It's good. If you're married or you get married, stay married. Keep the normal marital relations. That is God's will. Spirituality is not determined by marital status. In other words, if I'm single, it doesn't make me more spiritual. If I'm married, it doesn't make me more spiritual. But there are certain constraints within those individual states. So in one sense, Paul wished that all believers 
whereas he was unmarried. Paul apparently had the gift of celibacy. It's a spiritual gift that he can just go and function. He's not distracted by uh, sexual issues. He's not distracted by a marriage relationship. He said that in the light of the great freedom that he had, the independence that he had as a single person, that he could go minister and serve the Lord where he needed to and where he wanted to. But he did not expect all believers to be unmarried. He did not expect those who were single to stay single. And for those who were already married, it would be wrong to live as if they were single, to become celibate while married. So, again, he probably had the gift of celibacy, and he wished that every believer had that gift. Why? Because singleness has a lot of practical advantages, doesn't it? Sure, sure. It allows a greater degree of freedom in where and how a person can serve the Lord. And Paul points out, especially in verse 28 of this chapter, which we'll get to in another week, he says, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you of this. When I do premarital counseling, I try to dissuade the couple from getting married. I do everything I can to put a roadblock in their place. I tell them, you have no idea what you're doing. I try to scare them. I try to disqualify them. Why? Because they're going to face many troubles in life, and I want to spare them those things. I'm not being mean. I'm just being helpful. <laughs> Married people have many cares, many concerns that the unmarried do not have. Again, in that same chapter, verse 32, he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul concludes by saying that each of us is gifted by God in one way or another. Our purpose should be to realize how we are gifted and to use those gifts faithfully and joyfully, whether we are married or whether we are single. Amen? Amen. By the way, Welcome Nancy back. She's been battling cancer, and we're so glad to have her back. God bless you, Nancy. You're welcome. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your concern. Thank you for the gifts you give us. Thank you for this incredible gift called marriage. And thank you for this incredible gift called celibacy and singleness. Father, I pray for all those who are single in our body. Lord, that you would strengthen them. They can stay pure. Devote themselves wholly and fully to you. For those who are married, Lord, that you would bless them in their marriages. Cause them to renew their promises with each other. And just like the day they made those promises, they would rehearse them today. And Lord, reaffirm their commitment to you and to each other. 
We thank you, O God, for this great gift of sex that you've given us. We thank you that you're not a cosmic killjoy, you're not a prude, but you've given it to us for a specific environment, and that is marriage. Help us honor you, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.